Section 8 of The Crime of the French Café and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Crime of the French Café and Other Stories by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 8 Tracing the Trunks. Corbett's body had been cut in two. Only half was in the trunk which Nick had opened. The other half was not, however, far away. It was in the other trunk. Both trunks contained considerable blood, but they had been neatly lined with rubber cloth, apparently taken from a rubber blanket and a man's heavy waterproof coat. It was so fitted that the trunks, when closed, were watertight. "'The neatest job I ever saw,' said Nick. "'Come, Gaspar, tell a story.' "'I swear to you,' cried Gaspar, "'that I know nothing about it.' At this moment Patsy rapped on the door. He had brought back Harrigan. "'Come in,' said Nick, and they both entered. "'Holy mother!' shrieked Harrigan, when he saw the open trunks. "'So help me, gentlemen. I don't know nothing about this business. I ain't in it. I'm telling you straight. You don't believe I had anything to do with this, do yer?' "'You brought the trunks here,' said Nick. "'Let me tell you all about it,' cried Harrigan, who was so anxious to tell that he couldn't talk fast enough. "'The French lady struck me on me old place, you know, where I was the other night. "'She talked a kind of dago, but I tumbled to what she was a-givin' me. "'This was about half-past seven o'clock. "'Meet me,' says she, in an hour, and she give me street and number.' It was West 57th Street, but there ain't no such number. There's nothing but a high-board fence. But that didn't make no difference, cause when I got there, her giblets was a-standin' on der sidewalk, waitin' for me. Drive over to der corner, says she, and turn around and come back. I did it, and when I got there, she showed me these two trunks. I hadn't seen em before. Did she give me this mug's address and two bones for me fare, and told me to come down here, which I did, and I wished her... I hadn't. See? That's a pretty good story, Harrigan, said Nick. Patsy, get a policeman to stay here with Gaspar. Patsy brought the blue coat in a few minutes. Now, we'll go up to 57th Street, said Nick. Half an hour later they had found the place where, as Harrigan claimed, the French lady had delivered the trunks to him. "'I thought, of course, she'd been fired out of some boarding-house,' said Harrigan. "'There's a hash-mill dare on de right. I had an idea she'd been thrown out of dare.' Nick, meanwhile, had been examining the sidewalk with the aid of his dark lantern. "'Clever work,' he said. There are no marks on the sidewalk. The trunks were not dragged. That woman must be pretty strong. You say you didn't see the trunks when you first drove up? No. Then they couldn't have been here. Where were they? Not in any of these houses. She couldn't have got them out quick enough. Then they must have been behind that fence. There was a little gate in the fence, which Nick opened as he spoke. Ah, here we have tracks, he said. It's all clear enough now. 
The trunks were brought across this vacant lot from one of the houses facing the other street. The lot is the width of three flat houses, which stand behind it. There are no gates in the fence between the yards of the houses and the lot, but Nick found a wide board that could be pulled off and replaced without much trouble. Passing through the opening made by taking away this board, he found himself in the yard of the middle house. The trunks came from here, he said. They were lowered down in the dumbwaiter to the cellar, and then carried through the lot to 57th Street. I'll leave the rest of this job to you, Patsy. Find out all you can, and have as many witnesses as you can get together, at the superintendent's office tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock. We're going to have a special examination into this case. The special examination began promptly at the hour named by Nick. All the persons hitherto mentioned in connection with the case, except, of course, the two victims, were present. There were also several witnesses whom Patsy had secured. The case which I have made out, said Nick, is perfectly clear. It begins with Gaspar's identification of the prisoner, Jones. We know that he was at the restaurant when the crime was committed. His name is on the books. In some way, which I am not now prepared to fully explain, the waiter, Corbett, obtained a knowledge of the crime. It was necessary for the criminal to get Corbett out of the way. I saw Corbett get into a cab at the door of the restaurant. The driver, Harrigan, testified to taking him and another man to a point on West 57th Street. He was not sure of the exact spot, but he fixed the locality in a general way. From that point, all trace of Corbett was lost for a time. At last his body was found. I succeeded in tracing the body back to a place near the spot where Harrigan last saw Corbett alive. I discovered that the body had been removed from a flat house on West 58th Street. My assistant, Patsy, questioned the people in that house. He learned that the third flat had been occupied by a couple who lived very quietly. The man was often away. I now desire to ask the witness, Eliza Harris, who lives in that house, when she last saw the man in question, the man who rented that third flat. A bright-eyed little woman arose at this and said, I see him now. There he is. She pointed to John Jones. He wore a false beard, she continued, but I know him, and there's the woman. She stretched out her hand toward Mrs. Jones. To their flat, Nick continued, as I have every reason to believe, Corbett was taken by Jones on that night, and there he was murdered and his body cut in two. It was placed in the trunks. Jones intended, probably, to remove it next day, but his arrest prevented. Of course it was necessary to get the body out of the way very soon, but Jones was too closely watched. That work had to be done by the woman, and she did it exceedingly well. Nick told how Musgrave had been duped. Now, he continued, nothing remains but to clear up the details of the crime in the restaurant. I shall proceed to state exactly how it was done. At this moment Jones, who had previously remained perfectly calm, uttered a horrible groan, and half arose to his feet. He sank back, fainting. And then came a surprising incident, 
for which even the shrewd superintendent of police had been wholly unprepared. A pale-faced man, who had been sitting beside Nick, arose and cried in a voice that trembled with emotion, "'Stop! Stop! I can bear this no longer!' It was Hammond, the man who begged Nick to save Jones. While Nick had been speaking, Hammond's eyes had been fixed upon Jones's face. He had watched the agony of fear growing upon the wretched man, and gradually overcoming him. And when the burden became too great for the accused to bear, Hammond also reached the limit of his endurance. "'I can't stand it,' he cried. "'You shall not torture this innocent man any longer.' "'What do you mean?' asked the superintendent. "'This is what I mean. The fear of disgrace has kept me silent too long. Now I will confess everything.' Do you think I will sit here and let an innocent man be condemned, and his wife put to torture to save me from the just punishment of my fault? Never. Listen to me. It was I who took that unhappy woman to the place where she met her death. It was I who wrote that name in the register. I, I, and not that innocent man, was her companion. The waiter, Gaspar, is mistaken. I am the man who was in room B. End of section 8. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.